Welcome, fellow baseball fans, to episode 54 of the Banish to the Pen podcast, a group baseball blog produced by diehard fans of the podcast, Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm your host, Ryan Sullivan, editor-in-chief of NatsGM.com and the Baron of all baseball podcasts. This week, I am proud to welcome back to the show two friends and two regulars of the podcast, and uh, two very vital members of the Banish to the Pen, I guess, gang, I'll say. Uh, Alec Denton and Scott Kushner. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks for having me. Guys, I'm really uh, I'm really appreciative of you guys joining me, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing a little baseball talk with you guys. So uh, let, let's start uh, the same way we start every week, uh, introduce ourselves. I think uh, the audience probably knows me at this point, so we'll skip that. Uh, Alec, how about you introduce yourself to the audience, where they can find you on Twitter, who you're a fan of, uh, where they can find your writing besides Banish the Pen, if there is any, whatever you want to share. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, I live here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a transplant from Michigan, so I'm a Detroit Tigers fan. In addition to writing at Banish to the Pen and the late techgraphs.com, I also write uh, at my own site, aldland.wordpress.com, and I'm on Twitter at Eldlandia. Very, very cool. Glad to have you back, Alec. And uh, Scott, same question. Uh, well, I, uh, I'm a Division three uh, head baseball coach at Centenary. Now it's Centenary University. We just had a uh, university status, uh, but that's in uh, northwest New Jersey. And uh, I just finished up my eighth season there. And, uh, I, you know, I've done some writing for Banish of the Pen. It's been a little bit of a layoff, but I'm hoping this summer I'm able to kind of uh, – Call some of my thoughts from over the last season and and put it to to paper or computer at least and, and get it out there to for people to read. Uh, you can follow my Twitter account. I have two Twitter accounts, but the one that I'm most active with is my team account, which is at CC Baseball. At CC Baseball, we got it. Um, Scott, first question I got to ask you is, what is the difference between a university and a college? It's a great question. I th- I'm hoping to find out soon. I always thought the university had a graduate school of some type, and a college didn't. But it, well, well, we've, we've had graduate programs for some time, so I, I maybe maybe we were already operating as a university. I think that was maybe part of the push for it. Uh, we have a couple of satellite campuses that are very small, but I think that might also be part of it. So I, I think there was some of it where maybe we were operating as a university ahead of time. Uh, but we're not a very big school. Uh, my my hope was that everybody's salaries would be doubled, but uh, I haven't heard wind of that yet, so I'm not getting my hopes up on that front. So that didn't happen, is what I'm hearing. Not, no, yeah, not yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pay stubs still look uh, small as ever. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, the hard knock life of being a D3 coach, right? That's right. It's well, fun. Well, the last time I had you on, I believe it was right before the season, and we were—I was getting a little preview uh, about your team and what you were expecting this year. So now, I've, I guess the first place we got to start is fill us in on how the 2016 team did. Well, yeah. Uh, so last time you were really pressing me for predictions, and you know, as as a coach, you have to be optimistic. But it was very tough to be optimistic this year, uh, given that I had graduated 19 seniors from last year, including our first All-American, who was also the reigning player of the year in the conference. Uh, we had graduated another guy that was, had been a player of the year of the conference earlier. Uh, basically, the entire pitching staff, infield, my starting and backup catcher, and two-thirds of my outfield. So graduating all of that, I thought we were going to be pretty pretty terrible this year. Uh, I didn't want to say that on the last podcast, but I, I think I hinted at it. But um, 
but we actually not only exceeded expectations, we actually ended up having a better record this year than we did last year, um, which was which was a very pleasant surprise. And um, we ended up having the rookie of the year of the conference. Uh, we had a freshman pitcher who led the conference in ERA, and uh, actually just found out today he was the uh, uh, Division Three D3Baseball.com All-Region Rookie of the Year and maybe some All-American awards to come still. Oh, fantastic. Congratulations to the unnamed player. Uh, his, his name is Trey Hinkle, um, and uh, he's, he was phenomenal. Just basically was the ace of our staff every, you know, from, from opening day on and, uh, you know, just w- was outstanding. But, of course, the way, the way these things work is it's, it's kind of dangerous to have nice things or things that are too nice. And right now, Trey, and I'm helping him with this, but Trey is, is considering transferring up to a higher division. So um, it's a little bittersweet, and he may not do it, uh, but I, w- I want what's best for him, even if it means that it wouldn't be continuing with us. And that would be a perfect segue for later in the book, ta- later in this uh, podcast, talking about the book uh, with Sam and Ben. But uh, we're going to have to leave that for a little later. No, no doubt, no doubt. But uh, what was the final record on the season? And uh, maybe give us a little preview as to uh, what uh, you have going on for the summer ahead. Uh, right. So we were we finished the season nineteen and fourteen, uh, and we were uh, exactly nine and nine in conference. Uh, we weren't expected to do much at all in conference. I think all the other teams in conference knew that we had graduated everybody as well. So we were we were picked to finish second to last. Um, as it turned out, we went to the last weekend of the um, of the season with a three game set. And if we uh, if we swept the three game set, we were going to go to the playoffs. Only the top four teams make the playoffs. We ended up winning uh, the doubleheader on a Saturday, and then uh, we we lost the the decisive game, the last game of the season. Uh, we lost. We were tied four four in the eighth, and then our bullpen just imploded, and uh, we ended up losing. So. It was it was a, to to put us in the last game of the season and have it actually mean something given where we started was uh, was an accomplishment but we just just shy of uh, of making the playoffs uh, and as far as the season goes now it's you know back to the drawing board got to go out there got to recruit players um, I got kids that are you know showing interest or kids that we were on last year that were just juniors and uh, you know we got a you know their high school seasons are finishing up and then their travel ball seasons start up so it's showcases tournaments random games um and just trying to to find the next crop of players to bring in well i'm gonna put the heat on you again but it sounds like you should have a successful 2017 if most of those players are coming back yeah i mean we that that's the one thing is we, we didn't graduate as many guys this year we had a couple guys that had nice senior seasons but uh we do have some young players I mean, we got a number of freshmen who got you know who were full-time starters or, or played an awful lot this year so you hope that they they all take that you know next step forward and and uh can be can be stars all right guys uh next next thing i want to talk about a little bit is uh, a little banter if i could for the show this week uh and i'll give a tip of the cap to uh the sinister minister uh eric roseberry a f- former guest on the show who gave the idea out so uh he threw it out there, I think, in the uh, Effectively Wild Facebook group. Um, if you could only have three internet sources of baseball info for, I, I guess, kind of the rest of your life or, you know, going forward, which three sites would you choose? Uh, I don't know. who. Maybe we'll tag in Alec here. Maybe a good time. Let's start with you, Alec. Uh, any thoughts? Sure. I mean, I guess 
uh, ever since I heard the question, it's hard to be original. At least I'm having a hard time being original or unique on this question. But I think the sites that I find myself going to the most are, of course, uh, Baseball Prospectus, Fangraphs, and Baseball Reference, just to kind of keep up on all the information. I certainly enjoy following uh, my favorite team, the Tigers, as well as my local team, the Braves. But I think if I was limited to three, I would have to go to those sort of national scope repositories of data. I think that would definitely be more than enough to uh, keep up with the sport um, with those three sites. Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty good call. How about how about you, Scott? Yeah, I, I definitely feel Alex pain in trying to come up with something original. Um, I'll take I'll take two of the ones that he said. I think Baseball Reference to me is just the ultimate argument ender. You know, like if there's ever a discussion on something, you go to Baseball Reference and it's like, no, the numbers say pretty clearly. You know, <laughs> you know this this guy was better than that guy, or he led the league, not that guy, or you know, it just I can't tell you how many times that has saved me or or um, indicted me on on uh, arguments that I've had with other baseball uh, fans. Uh, baseball perspectives, you know, just it's the I feel like it's one of the sites and my favorite that's like the vanguard of baseball thought uh, and, and kind of pushing the envelope there. And the quality of writing is superb. Last week, Sam's uh, piece was posted in the Facebook group. And that that wasn't just a great baseball article. That was a great piece of writing. Um, and I think you know that's the kind of stuff that holds up and kind of makes baseball perspective special. And then the the third one that I'll you know maybe it's cheating, but I'm gonna go with the effectively wild Facebook page. Um, mm. I don't I don't have a lot of time to go calling through uh, Twitter and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like the the effectively wild fans and everybody who posts to the Facebook page kind of does the curating of all the curators that are out there. Um, you get great articles, you get funny stuff, uh, you get interesting discussions. And so that'd be my third one. All right. Good answers, guys. Good answers. Uh, when I heard the question the first time, it, it kind of, I, I think that my initial reaction was the same thing as you guys. First of all, I had to exempt my site natsgm.com, of course, and I had to exempt banish to the pen. I mean that, you know, that kind of goes without saying it would be, you know, unfair for the conversation. So we start there, but, uh, I mean, I'm in. I'm at Baseball Prospectus and Fangraphs every single day. I mean, whether it's looking somebody up, looking something up, scouting reports, player stuff, whatever it is. I mean, those two. Uh, I mean, Baseball Reference is right there too. The only thing I would say is you can get everything for the most part that you can at Baseball Reference, at Fangraphs, and and Baseball Prospectus if you look. So, I, if I was limited to three, I might have to exclude Baseball Ref just for redundancy a little bit, but. I mean, it's tough. I mean, Brooks Baseball is is something I use almost every day. I mean, that's a fantastic site. Dan Brooks and Harry Pavlidis and and the guys. I mean, you know, learning about pitching and what's going on. I mean, they have no peer. I mean, that's the best site out there. 2080 Baseball, uh, you know, kind of the offshoot from Baseball Perspectives, the scouting guys. I mean, I mean that site is phenomenal, and the work that they've got going on over there is great. Uh, 538. I mean, you know, I have to read everything Ben Lindbergh and Rob Arthur write. I mean, so that's that's that came to mind. And, and then I started getting a little uh, – and then it started getting a little hokey for me because then I started going, well, what about Twitter? What about Facebook? What about YouTube? The the kind of stuff, that, you know, MLB.com and, and the stuff like that. So then it started getting too complicated. So 
I don't know. Pick and choose the ones, but the, I think we're all in agreement on kind of the first two. Yeah, I wish uh, – I think you're right, Ryan. I, I should have chosen Brooks Baseball if I had a little more time to meditate on it. I think what they have um, – or maybe Baseball Savant, even one of those two might jockey for a third position for me just with the StatCast repository, the ability to search pitch FX data – is really amazing that we have all that at our fingertips. So I might trade one of those out on my list. Yeah, and they're in a day that goes by, and, and I'm guessing Scott's probably the same, where we're not watching YouTube, watching players and video and all that stuff. So it's how do you take that resource away, too? I mean, that, that that's a, I don't know, I couldn't get away without YouTube as well. What did we do before the internet? Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So... <laughs> All right, guys, uh, let's move ahead a little bit uh, because I do have some other things, obviously, on the agenda today. But, uh, Alec, I want to talk to you and give you the floor a little bit to talk about your piece that you wrote recently about uh, about the shift. I, I think maybe just uh, I'll let you kind of take it from there. Okay, sure. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I guess it's been maybe a week or two ago. I had a post up at Banish of the Pen about defensive shifts and strategies to attack the defensive shift and looking at one in particular. I think after a couple weeks in this current season, a couple things became pretty clear. One, defensive shifts were continuing to increase at probably an exponential rate. And uh, two, it seemed to be the fact that there was really no effective way to beat the shift. I think Jeff Sullivan over at Fangraphs had a pretty uh, definitive article on the subject, not to say that there will never be a way to beat the shift, but that uh, in terms of sort of a ready remedy, baseball seems to be lacking right now. Things that I think many of us assumed would rise up to counter the new defensive strategy on offense, like bunting, hitting the other way, uh, just don't seem to be available resources to most hitters. And I think we're, we're sort of the consensus seems to be at the point right now that uh, the shift wins even if you're making a guy change his approach to beat the shift. You're making a batter do something that's already extremely difficult, which is to put the bat on the ball, and now you're asking him to do it in a way that is unnatural, suboptimal, and what have you. So faced with this sort of new reality of the dominant shift, um, I wondered whether there was a certain unique subset of hitters who might be uniquely positioned to actually successfully beat the shift. And when Fangraphs came out with their list, uh, they came out with, uh, you can run splits by shift, at least for the last couple of years. And so I, what I did was look at the um, top 50 most shifted players from 2015, most shifted hitters, and there are familiar names, uh, David Ortiz, Prince Fielder, Ryan Howard, Brian McCann, the sort of power-hitting, left-handed, slow-base-running guys who would seem to be uh, especially susceptible to slow-base-running and pull-hitting to the first-base side of the diamond. But uh, the guys who I thought might be able to beat the shift were switch hitters because these are guys who at least uh, – you think could hit the ball equally well from both sides of the plate, but they decide to hit from the right or the left to take advantage of uh, platoon leverage. And among the 50 most shifted hitters from 2015 were included 
uh, nine switch hitters. And so to look at whether these guys would be able to beat the shift, what I did was compare how they hit in terms of weighted on base average between hitting as a right-handed batter against right-handed pitching and then how they hit versus the shift in general um, to sort of set up a comparison to see, well, if they're better, my thought was if they're better hitting right-handed versus right-handed pitching, um, then they might have a chance to sort of sacrifice the platoon advantage in split situations to perform better than they would against the shift. Um, and what I found out was that that's probably not the case, despite, at least to me, the amateur, and maybe Scott would laugh at this, or you, Ryan, with all the scouting you do, but I thought, hey, these guys can hit maybe just as well, at least mechanically, from both sides. But there were only three of the nine who had positive differences, who, who seemed to hit better hitting right-handed versus right-handed pitching than they did against the shift. But really, there's a, a very small amount of data here to base this decision. Guys, just as guys who hit only from one side or the other, are probably better off just swinging away when they're shifted and sticking to plan A. Uh, it seems like switch hitters have also figured out, well, I'm better against the, you know, against the platoon advantage than I am against same-handed pitching. And so there really just isn't a lot of data. Um, the three guys of the nine who seemed to show a potential advantage were Victor Martinez, Justin Smoke, and Mark Teixeira, but they've hardly ever hit against same-sided pitching, so their historical data didn't provide a strong basis to say that they ought to switch to beat the shift, basically. Um, and so I, I, the way I left it, and I'm happy to hear questions or suggestions if you think there's something here, but... The way I left it was just basically to say, let's look at what these guys do and let that be an indication of what's the best way to do something. I mean, in the same way that we look to uh, pitchers, when they start pitching around guys, it's an indication that, that those are guys who may be having a breakout season or finding new power. In the same way, these switch hitters have made the choice uh, to hit from the right and the left to take the platoon advantage. They probably, they, they know more about baseball than I do and they're in the best position to know what's the most optimal strategy, and maybe they just don't regard the shift as that serious of a threat, or at least relative to them trying to gain the advantage by switch hitting. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's very interesting. That, the, my first, my, the only thing that I can think of off the bat is just the only way to really combat the shift is trying to hit the ball in the air more so and, and trying to pull it rather than trying to maybe bunt into it or, or slap it the other way. But yeah. that's that's really the only thing that's kind of been – I know Oakland did that with getting a bunch of outfield or uh, fly ball hitters a couple of years ago, and and you've seen some of that. Uh, Chris Coughlin really broke out a couple of years ago, kind of going with that strategy. But that's that's really the only thing I can think of. Scott, kind of a, a, your thoughts, much different perspective and lens? Well – I mean, I think it's a very interesting idea, and I didn't, expect, I didn't even realize there was going to be as much data as you as you were able to find on you know switch hitters hitting uh, with the same side as the pitching. Um, I think though, I think one of the reasons why there's not going to be much data and why it's still 
the, the defense is still winning with all this is most switch hitters, the vast majority of their bats are, are still taken left-handed because they're facing mostly right-handed pitching. So I think it's rare. If you find a switch hitter, and maybe maybe you can, can do this with the data that you have, of the switch hitters who get shifted, how many of them are better hitters right-handed than lefty? I would imagine that most switch hitters perform better left-handed. They probably hit way more be- uh, left-handed. Um, but if there are switch hitters who perform better as right-handed hitters, whether that's their natural side or, or whatnot, maybe those are the guys that are uh, are more prone to being able to do this and maybe train this way. That's the other part. There's not much data because these guys are never practicing hitting right-handed versus right-handed pitcher. I can I can assure you that if you're a switch hitter, if you're any of these guys, I'm looking at the list right now, if you're any of those guys, when you're taking batting practice, when you're playing in games, if you have not st- stood in there in the right-hand batter's box and faced a right-handed pitcher, you're not going to feel comfortable. You definitely wish you're going to be on the other side. Um, so it, it's one of those things where they're going to have to do the, the the preparation for that, you know, months in advance, if not years in advance. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, to, the, I, I, to that I, point, I, Scott, uh, those guys have never seen a breaking ball breaking away from them in how many years? I mean, that's right. Maybe, maybe ever, because uh, I would imagine that many, very few switch hitters pick it up late in their career. Some guys do, but that's a, that's a tough skill to to try and you know figure out when you're in college or in the minor leagues. Chances are these guys have been doing it in high school or before that. In which case, now you know, ten years later, they're they're playing professional baseball. They're playing at the highest level. And you're going to tell them, hey, you know what? Go back to doing what you're doing before. I think that's, I think that's a tough sell, um, you know. And, you, and and at that point, again, even if if you make that concession, has the defense has the shift already won at that point? Um, yeah, yeah, that's I, definitely something I thought about, Scott. I mean, it's almost like you know, I kind of broke one of my tenants by saying, well, if a, if a David Ortiz is trying to bunt, well, obviously the shift is won, even if he puts down a bunt. Uh, but you know, right. is, is it really the same thing if if uh, a switch hitter hits same you know right-handed from the right-handed side? Um, it, it has an effect already won, and I kind of I, I think in a way, but event basically circled back to that point. It's like, well, it looks like it probably has. Um, right. Well, here's here's what I think. Uh, bunting, obviously, if you can actually get down a bunt, yes, that that helps. But do you want guys like David Ortiz bunting? No. Uh, course not and, Obviously and not, if, yeah. you're, if you're if you're pitching to david ortiz you definitely consider it a victory even if he occasionally drops down a bunt double you know um, <laughs> and, and let's but, not overlook uh, he's probably out half the time even if he drops a bunt because he's so slow exactly and and uh you know we we do shifts a lot um it's something that i'm i'm kind of proud that as a we, we don't see it very much at our level but it's something that we've done. I probably started shifting about four or five years ago, um, and we've just gotten more and more confident with it in years past. Um, but even this year, I think now teams start to realize that we like to shift, particularly against left-handed pole hitters. And uh, and we had a, a situation this year where there was a big, I mean, a very David Ortiz-esque hitter at the plate against one of our conference opponents. And the first time we put a shift on the very first pitch, he dropped down a perfect bunt down the left, down the third baseline. And it took him seven and a half seconds to get to first base, but there was nobody there to field the ball and throw him out. 
Um, so it worked. You know, he, he bunted his way on. The second time we put the shift on, he bunted it foul and abandoned the shift or abandoned the bunt. You know, so um, and he 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 uh, he tried it a couple times and and gave it up and then ended up hitting right into the shift again. So um, I I think where where this is gonna go if it's really gonna ever be beat, you have to understand that. I mean, you guys maybe know better than I do. When did it really start to take off in the at the major league level? You know, where where just league wide shifting was happening. What two years ago? Uh, at the, at the right. earliest, my yeah, I was going to say was, maybe three years ago if we really want to stretch it. But yeah, the point's well taken. Absolutely. Right. So not that long ago. And the guys who are hitting against it now, the guys who are in the league now, the vast majority of them either were already through the minor leagues and in the majors or have just come up within those last couple of years, right? So there really hasn't been any time for them to prepare for this. They, you know, as. And I know we're going to get into the book later, but as they kind of reveal, a lot of guys don't trust trying to do something new when they got to the major leagues doing X, Y, and Z. If you try and teach them to do, you know, W and V, they're not going to try and do that. You know, they're not going to feel comfortable doing that. And it's very hard to pick up a new skill against the best pitchers in the world. So, um, so I think these guys are kind of locked in being the hitters that they are. However, guys that are getting drafted right now, guys that are playing in college or high school and can be coached throughout their minor league career for the next three, four years to beat the shift, not with bunting necessarily, but with hitting the ball the opposite field or trying, you know, um, I think that can be something that helps mitigate the, the, the shift. It may not eliminate it, but I think it, you know, right now you're dealing with a bunch of hitters who I mean, this was kind of sprung on them a couple years ago, and they don't they don't have the ability to just change on a dime to to combat it. And, and to build off your point, uh, Scott, if I can, I, one, I mean, you don't see very much shifting in college at all, and and frankly, I don't see many at the minor no. league level now. But I think that this point could also be built upon the strikeout epidemic we're seeing, particularly at the major league level. I think the next shift and the next paradigm transition we could see in the game is more contact hitters, more guys putting the bat on the ball to prevent the strikeout. And I think at that point, we could also see these guys who are better at literally just barrel skills, putting the bat on the ball and maybe knowing where having a little bit more control with the baseball. And Ichiro comes to mind because he's such an extreme example, but everybody knows him. I think maybe the next wave is seeing guys of more of that ilk particularly in you know the one, two, six, seven, eight holes in the game. And maybe that's where they start combating the shift, and that where is where they have better barrel control. I agree with you guys. I mean, I think player development is the answer. You know, that's what uh, the article I referenced by Jeff Sullivan. He says, you know, we may not have an immediate answer, but it is in player development and in selecting the types of guys who can answer this new defensive uh, strategy. And that's where it will come from, um, you know, whether to be put it in the air, as Ryan suggested, or just be able to have decent power at all fields. Those are the types of guys who are going to be favored coming up. And we've also – oh, go ahead, Scott. You had a point. I'm sorry. Uh, well, I was just going to say, um, one, I think I think the Ichiro skill set is a rare one. Sure, um, obviously. And and, and – now, it's a, maybe we think it's a rare one because we don't see many guys like that 
because those guys never quite make it to the show because they're looking for more power and things like that. So it, I think maybe there are more players like that than we even realize, but they just they never quite make it up to the to the the majors. Um, but but then you know it's it's a trade off. Yes, you have. I mean, looking at this list on your on your article of of the guys who get shifted the most, a lot of those guys are really good hitters, this, despite the shift. So, again, the question would be, you know, do, you know, and I, I realize he's an he's an older example, but but David Ortiz gets shifted the most. Do you really want to not have David Ortiz in your lineup so that you can have a little slap hitter who's able to hit a single to where the shift? you know, to beat the shift or to, to keep the defense honest so that the playing a more traditional alignment. I think you're, I think the value for most of these guys is still there despite the shift and probably even more so than even a guy with good back control. Now, if you have a guy with good back control and power, then you got a pretty special player, <laughs> but yeah, sure. Um, you know, but maybe we start seeing scouting, we start looking for players, except at the ideal power positions, maybe we start seeing guys more in the, and he's just coming about because the draft's coming up, but Nick Senzel from Tennessee, a guy who's going to project at third base to play hit more 10 to 12 home runs, but maybe hit more doubles in contact rather than the traditional right. 30 home run slugger that we are, you know, that we've been quote unquote scouting the last, you know, 10 or 15 years at those positions. No, I think that's I think that's fair, Alec. Anything else that that we missed in the column? Uh, uh, it was so, so good. I don't want to overlook any any of your points. No, I appreciate it, and it's really helpful discussion to hear from, especially both of you guys who have such hands-on experience in scouting, player development, and all that kind of thing. I mean, I think we really covered the bases. It was just a. I was a little bit. I was surprised, and then not surprised to find out how little data there was. I mean, the fact that a guy like Victor Martinez, who's had such a long and successful career, has only hit right-handed pitchers from the right side like 19 times in however many thousands of plate appearances he's had. And I was like, okay, well, he's probably got something figured out, and maybe I ought to just trust him. Yeah, and if you take out those guys facing knuckleballers, I wonder how small that sample actually gets. Sure. So... Um, well, if, if we've covered your, your article, Alec, uh, and I recommend everybody go check it out at Banish to the Pen, please do. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, let's move ahead a little bit, and I want to talk a little bit about the book. Sounds good. Um, yeah. this, big disclaimer here. If you have not read Ben and Sam's The Only Rule Is It Has to, uh, it has to Work, spoiler alert, maybe you want to stop it here. Um, there you go. Spoiler alert. Okay, so... Boom! Boom! There we go. Okay, so um, guys, I I don't really know where to start with the book. I, I think the first place that I just want to start is I, I was really amazed that I was looking forward to it for as long as I was, and it beat or exceeded my expectations. I, I think was really the amazing thing. Um, a, a, let's start alphabetically. Alec, just uh, uh, maybe just give you the the floor to talk about the book and, and see where it goes. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like you, and I think like all of us who write for the site and who read any of those websites that we discussed a little while ago, I think we were all looking forward to this book with great anticipation just to see, I mean, these are two of the leading lights in our community, guys we read and listen to every day and excited to hear what we knew, you know, we knew they were engaged in this project and we were going to find out 
kind of what were the results? I mean, what happened? I think a lot of us were sort of keeping up with the Stompers as their season went along, but we obviously wanted to know Ben and Sam's takeaways from the season to hear about how they went about implementing their ideas and all that. I mean, this is what, you know, Scott aside, obviously Scott has a team and he is a coach. He's definitely <laughs> here to hear what his perspective is. But for, for those of us who are who just sit back and write their uh, wild theories about switch hitters and the shift from their office or, or uh, home office, then to find out, you know, what is it like? How does it uh, go into effect with all these ideas we talk about all the time? And um, like a lot of folks have observed, uh, Ben and Sam have done a lot of interviews. The book has been reviewed extensively over the last couple of weeks. And I think what uh, I really came away with was obviously the humanity of the situation, getting to know these players on a personal level um, and, and also the, the human element. We talk about the human element of umpiring maybe a lot, but the human element of the, uh, the two-man front office or three-man front office, so to speak, of the Stompers communicating with uh, the management on the bench and in the dugout and on the field and how difficult it can be to translate those ideas and how important just communication and presentation are to coaches and players. Um, and then just how important, you know, I mean, a bigger respect, I guess, for, for the importance of managers, especially at these lower-level leagues. Um, Ryan and I were talking before we started, of course, about Freddie Gonzalez getting fired, and we thought, well, how much effect uh, does a manager really have anyway on a baseball team? It's certainly a common discussion here in Atlanta these days, but um, you kind of realize that at certain levels, and maybe at all levels, a lot more than we realize on a day-to-day. -day. Uh, maybe it is a much more difficult job than and sometimes we think just because it, we can't quite quantify uh, the manager's effect, maybe except for at the extremes. And so really just gives you, uh, gave me anyway, an appreciation, again, and a reminder of how difficult the game baseball is and then how difficult it is just on a daily basis to manage and run a team. Um, just great insight into a lot of uh, really unique and special challenges and such a fun read. Yeah. Uh, Scott, uh, just the book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, Alec, I think you brought up some some terrific points. I, I was I read the book. I, I just finished the the uh, epilogue a, a few hours ago, actually. Um, and and as I'm reading it, I mean, it, it's amazing to me the personal connection that I felt with it. Uh, one because you know this is these are two guys who we listen to their voices every day. We listen to their thoughts on baseball every day. Um, I mean, we wouldn't be a part of Banished to the Pen or the Effectively Wild Facebook group or any of that kind of stuff if we weren't, you know, kind of devoted to these guys um, and and felt a, a certain connection with them. Uh, and, and their personalities, I think, make it that. I mean, they're they're very humble in their in their expertise. I feel like. Um, and I'm reading this book, and even though it's a different level than what I coach and all that kind of stuff, uh, the issues that they they jousted with throughout this season. From the, the player personnel, selecting a team, uh, you know, some of the shenanigans they pulled in trying to recruit players to their team, um, to, you know, implementing strategies, to, you know, as Alec was saying, the, the, the decision making at the managerial level, uh, the human element. Uh, I, know, I know Sam talks about the gut. Later uh, in, in the in the very end, um, just about how 
you can have all these preconceived notions of how you want to handle a situation and what you want to do and what you know you're going to come in you know like a you know just with all these ideas and it's going to change the way the game is played and and yet you still got to pull it off and and you have to make those tough decisions and part of making those tough decisions is getting other people who aren't on the same page with you to agree with them and to buy in and to actually execute them. Uh, it, it, so it, it just, it really resonated with, with what, what I feel like I do on a regular basis. What was what interesting to me is, um, you know, I feel like Ben and Sam come at it. You know, I know the book is pitched as like the, the ultimate fantasy team or whatever. Um, and these guys, I think come in certainly with the, the analytical side down pat, and you know, admittedly, they are light on the baseball side, right? They have no feel, or they're trying to get feel, and and all that. Um, and and for me, I am the reverse of it in the sense that you know, I've been coaching baseball for 13 years, something like that. Uh, and I got into you know, interested in sabermetrics when Moneyball came out, and and when I started reading uh, Baseball Prospectus, and effectively, Wild has only increased my interest in it. Um, so I lack the real depth of analytical skill, but I've I've craved it. I've tried to implement some things like shifts that we were talking about before, um, lineup construction, all kinds of things um, that that these guys talk about and have been talking about for years on their podcast. And and I've come at it from the more baseball side, trying to connect with the analytical. They're the analytical trying to connect with the baseball, and and it just it's amazing to me how that that gap is still not totally bridged um and and i think both sides kind of struggle struggle to make it fit yep and and building off a little bit about what you guys have said but the biggest thing that the takeaway that i took from the book is i love the title of it the only rule is it has to matter because and uh scott you gave a perfect example a, a little earlier when you were talking about that slugger you faced to the first time put the bunt down you know if you're yeah. walking into that clubhouse or the the dugout and you're saying okay we're going to shift against this guy and when sam and ben were acting and and describing the feeling of well shoot this better work or else we can't do this again and it's like yeah it could work 75 times out of 100 and be the right move but if it doesn't work the first time or the first two out of three times or three out of five you lose the confidence of that team and they lose confidence in oh what the hell do those guys know those guys don't know what's going on it's it's perfectly illustrated in it. Ha- the only rule is it has to work. I mean, yeah, in theory, you know, the shift can be great, but if they bunt it a couple of times and get those hits, or all of a sudden they score a key run, you've lost your audience. And I think that Scott, building off kind of your point of the the bridging that gap, is I think that was phenomenal, kind of illustrated in this book by both those guys of showing just that's the real place where. It, we can have all the information in the world, and and we can be right. right. And when I put we, you know, I'm talking sabermetricians or numbers guys. But if it doesn't right. work, and, and particularly the first couple times, it doesn't matter. Well, it, there's absolutely that. Uh, I remember, I think it was about five years ago, the first time we ever went to a four man outfield, and I thought, you know, it, it'd be smart to. You know, we're going to need to practice this before we pull it out in the game. We're going to do it for one one player and one player only. The 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 Matt Chavez of our league. We were, we were <laughs> going to do it, and uh, and so we you know we we got four outfielders out there, and I have an assistant coach that 
you know, was just, he was so into it. You know, I, I had turned him on effectively wild and he just became so devoted to it as well. And so we had come up with this idea and he was like teaching all the guys where they needed to position themselves and all that kind of stuff. And the players are looking at us like we have lost our damn minds <laughs> and we're, we're practicing it the day before the game against, against this guy. And, um, and you know, it, it goes okay. The guys start to, you know, they're having fun with it or whatnot. And we get into the, the pregame for the next day. And during batting practice, we had everybody shifted to the pole side for a right-handed hitter. All the infielders were shifted. We take our second baseman. We put him out in, um, in shallow right field. And we have three outfielders, center field, over towards left. Because um, that's where he just hit the ball. And during BP, he's hitting every ball down the right field line. Of course. <laughs> of course. And, and our, our players are looking at me like, we're not doing this right. And our, my assistant who it was his brainchild to do this is looking at me like, you know, we don't have to do it. And I said, you know what? We practice it. He's beat us a million times. We're going to stick with it. And fortunately it worked that day, but had it not, all it takes is one ground ball through where the second and everybody is now off, off, you know, just not on board anymore. And, um, and I think that's what those, what Ben and Sam realized is, you know, you you try and put theory into practice, and like you said, even if the numbers back it up, all it takes is for one what would have been a routine ball turn into a base hit, and now you have the pitcher pissed at you, you have the defender who would have made the play pissed at you, and you have everybody questioning your motives or your sanity or your intelligence. And uh, it can really derail the whole thing. And I think, oh, Sam also had a great point that even the sabermetricians don't agree. You know, that he and Ben, uh, I was actually a little surprised to see how much, I wouldn't say animosity, but disagreements Ben and Sam had with each other. You know, they seem so simpatico in, in the, uh, on the podcast for them to disagree about how to deal with the same, they're looking at the same data and coming to different conclusions. Um, you know, that there really is some, some, depth and uh complexity to to the strategy and it's not just so crystal clear based on the numbers uh and and i want to bring this topic up particularly and i want to ask it of of both alec and scott because of your different lens you know the way you you view and and your jobs but i was really surprised at the the amount of time spent talking about team chemistry in the book particularly in the middle half you want to say from page 100 to 200 It, it really focused on that and you know, getting along with uh, Phelan Lentini and getting him along board, and why can't you use this guy, Sean Connery, as a submarine? Uh, oh goodness, uh, fireman! Fireman, thank you. I was going yeah. subman or subway, and I was just getting hungry. That wasn't going to work. So thank <laughs> you. But I-, I thought that was fascinating, and I want to ask Alec your take on that, and then I want to ask Scott because you have such a unique take on it as well of of, of team chemistry. But I was surprised at how important and fragile that was portrayed in the book alec let let me start with you please yeah i completely agree ryan that was maybe my single biggest takeaway was kind of how much they focused on and struggled with the sort of things that that maybe with the exception of a, a russell carlton or something that most of the people in our community sort of quickly dismiss and we say oh well if you know, if we can just prove it to them that they'll go along. But they were so focused even on could we be in the dugout 
how can we have a conversation? How can we approach the manager and very basic sort of interaction type things? And it was sort of like uh, um, humbling, I think, from from people who are used to, you know, maybe you know, Ben and Sam are very come off as very humble guys, but we're used to kind of driving at an objective answer. That's I think part of Bill James' original definition of sabermetrics was the discovery of you know, objective information about baseball, and to find themselves knee deep or neck deep in the subjective, in the relationships, in the personal interactions. I mean, that, that to me was the majority of the story. And it was it says to me that maybe a big takeaway is, you know, this kind of stuff really does matter. Um, maybe we can't put numbers on it. We can't hook diodes up to guys' brains or guts or wherever else and, and get readings on how they're feeling. But that, that, that sort of stuff really, really is important. Even just something as simple as talking to the manager beforehand about the situations rather than talking to him during the game so you don't, quote, show him up in front of the players. I mean, that makes sense to me, but just something I wouldn't have thought of. Um, Scott, like I said, I, w- I w- really want to get your take on kind of the team chemistry aspect of the book because you have such a great you know view of team chemistry every day. Right. Well, um, you know, I, I'm not going to call this a mistake on Ben and Sam's part. I think it's what made the the book fascinating. But I wonder how the season would have played out and how the and, and really the experiment would have played out if Ben and Sam, instead of trying to, you know, in Sam's like opening speech to the team about how they're going to go slow and they're going to bring the guys along. I think I think what Ben and Sam suffered from is they they wanted to belong. They wanted to get the players to feel like they belonged there. Instead of just being, hey, listen, we're doing something different, and you're going to be on board because you have no other options. You're in, you're in this league for a reason, right. and we're doing something completely different. You're privy to information that nobody else is privy to. If we say shift, you're going to shift. If we pull a guy, you know, if our if our closer is coming in in the fifth inning, he's coming in in the fifth inning. And I know that's totally against what their personality is. It's totally against my personality too, by the way. But I wonder. If taking a more of a scientist in a lab coat studying from afar versus trying to ingratiate themselves and, and trying to belong in the dugout, um, if, if it would have taken, a, a, you know, if we would have seen the experiment in a little bit more of a purer form. Now, I think that for their sake, I don't think they would have wanted it any other way. I think they, you know, they spend all their time watching, listening, writing about baseball, I think they wanted to feel what it was like to be there as a person, not as uh, a scientist. Um, and I think that's what the, the book that was, you know, certainly the, the theme throughout the book that brought it all together. But I do I do wonder if, if they had abandoned team chemistry. They said team chemistry was important, and they treated it very importantly. I wonder if it would have really been that important in terms of wins and losses if they had just approached it in, in a more of that objective, you know, search for objective truth uh, sort of sense. I, I tend to agree with you in a certain way. I'm not sure. I think it makes it a much more, a much worse book overall. Right. And so maybe, and, and I do know, hey, this this experiment doesn't happen if the book isn't there. I mean, so, you know, right. they couldn't put their time to it and, and what have you. And I'm guessing the stompers 
wouldn't have been interested and gotten the same perks if they knew their, the book wasn't going on. So I, I think some of that is almost unfair in that respect, but I totally agree with you. I, I do think that if they had just come in and said, hey, here's the deal. You guys are making 500 bucks a month. We can find somebody that can play baseball if you don't want the job, put up or right. shut up kind of thing. Like you say, there's a reason you're here, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. Those guys can run circles around me, but I do think that they might have had more success or at least buy-in right. from the team, but I'm not sure that it's a, as good a book. Yeah, and and I think I think you know, and there's there's a there's a I guess there's a gray area between saying we're going to bring you along slowly and you know let's let's all be buddies. And also being that standoffish, you know, do as I say or or hit the road. Um, but but I think I think maybe again, just kind of more. And I think they lamented a little bit, like they should have probably drawn a line in the sand with with Lentini earlier than what they did. And I mean, they they hired him, they hired him in theory with the understanding that he was not going to be calling all the shots. And sure enough, they find themselves in a position where he's calling too many of the shots. And if, you know, if, if they had been able to follow through or if they had, you know, recruited Theo to, to on their behalf, stand in and say, listen, this ain't, it's, this is Ben and Sam's team. Like do what they say. You're, you're a figurehead and nothing more. Um, I, I, I wonder, I wonder. And, and honestly, I think the team chemistry would have been as good or as bad as the success of the strategies they implemented. You know, and I think that kind of goes for for most teams. Um, you can have great team chemistry, but then when you lose six in a row, guys don't like each other all that much. You know, everybody's in a bad mood when they're in a slump, uh, or we can't you can't get a win. Um, and if you're on a winning streak, guys tend to be a little happier and let things slide that they wouldn't otherwise. That sort of stuff. Um, so, so I guess I guess my my thing is um, I. As a as a coach for a small college team, yes, of course, team chemistry is important. I'm I'm in it for the experience for the players. They're not trying. They're not all. Most of them are not trying to play professionally. But in this particular case, uh, I wonder if Ben and Sam had taken the approach of like what we're going to institute for you guys will actually help propel you to another level because I think you're going to perform better than anybody else because you have more information than anybody else. Um, maybe that maybe would have helped. Maybe it would have flopped. Yeah, yeah I, had, I had the same question, Scott, and I, I think it reflected probably my, the own, my own biases that I brought to reading the book, but I kind of spent the first third to almost half of the book kind of waiting for it to get started. I'm like, okay, when are they going to start putting in some of these ideas? And they spent, as we all recognize, so much time just trying to fit in and find their place that they felt comfortable with. Uh, and I was listening earlier today to their interview with Jonah Carey on his new podcast, which I definitely recommend. And they kind of reflected that exact point, which was they said, you know, if on opening day they let uh, Faye set the starting lineup, they, and they said if we had come in and said, here's the lineup, you know, maybe things would have been different. They let that guy who's probably, what, their eighth best pitcher or something like that be the opening day starter just because he said he wanted to do it. And, right. and that ended up having – uh, precedent down the line for important starts in guys' minds. And they, and they said, you know, sure, we only had a week of spring training and barely knew these guys. But maybe if we'd said, no, you are the, you know, somebody else is the opening day starter, it would have established a precedent 
And, and that's what especially Sam was talking about on this interview, and I, it comes up at, towards the end of the book. But one of their big revelations or realizations, at least, was that action has power. And people who act, people follow them. They talk about the guy who was a manager for one of the rival teams, uh, like a bench coach, who just showed up in their dugout one day and said, oh, I'm a coach for you now. And everyone's like, I don't think so. And he just spent the whole game there because nobody, because he said he was a coach, and then he went back. I mean, and there's sort of that realization that action is power in in baseball and in a lot of areas, frankly. But um, but that really was a big takeaway for that. That's a great call. The, building off yeah. that kind of takeaway as well, I, I found experience to be such a just a point that keeps coming through over and over. I mean, Ben and Sam say it. Hey, we would have done it differently at this point. I, I, Scott, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm guessing that. There are things that you would do now with your team that you wouldn't do in your rookie season with the club, and uh, I think some of it's just familiarity. You get more confident in yourself. You've seen more. You've experienced more, but that really came through to me as well. As I, I think they would be fanta- much better a second year doing this because of be- already being through the trials and tribulations and knowing, okay, no, I've fired somebody. I've done this. I've, I've picked them up. I've, I've done this before. It's not the end of the world kind of thing. Right. Oh, I, you're you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I think I think they they talk about it in the past on their on their podcast of just you know human beings are are risk averse or loss averse, and um, you know, and so in, in their case, you know, they they didn't want to upset the apple cart too much uh, until it got to a boiling point that you know they they could not no longer sustain. But but you know now that they have you know like you said they fired a coach. They, you know, had face-to-face run-ins with players or, or other coaches, and and you know, kind of have went through the the ebbs and the flows emotionally of a season, and and once you've kind of been through that battle, uh, and you you know that you still come out on the other end, like you'll survive those those incidents. Yeah, you don't fear them as much, uh, and taking away that fear, I think, especially from the manager managerial standpoint uh goes a long way uh, and, you, and look how much experience is revered amongst the players as well right good point um, great I point mean, that was that is that is the number one qualification for getting on the field and it's almost the number one qualification for where you bat in the lineup is how old are you where have you played how long have you been there are you a rookie or are you a veteran did you play affiliated ball or you know have you just been kicking around um you know the independent leagues that is the like the le- the the number one line on the resume, and it almost doesn't matter how good they are, uh, in the eyes of the players, and and in the, of the managers. So, whether I, I'm not saying that that's the right way to look at it, I'm just saying that that's that's the way it is looked at from the human element, and um, you know, and I think that once the once the experiences has been had by anybody involved with the team. Uh, suddenly their perspective as well as how they're perceived changes pretty dramatically. Yeah, great take. Um, Scott or Alec, anything else uh, you want to touch on uh, about the book or just in general? Just that I definitely recommend it. I think everybody ought to read it. it, it it's tremendous. I actually uh, I got the, the college library to order a copy um just cuz they, they actually had uh they put like the new books up in the lobby and they had uh Passan's book the arm is up there so I'm going to go and check that out tomorrow but um 
but I said, hey, do you guys have this book? And they said, no. And I said, you guys better order that and make sure that it gets in here. So they, they I just got an email the other day saying that it has arrived. Um, I will also definitely give a shout out to their website. Um, after I finished the book today, I went through and what I thought was really cool is they have they have the, their roster up there. If you haven't checked out the you know, the only rules it has to work dot com, they have like a baseball card for each player on the roster. Um, and then if you click on the little arrow on the corner of the of the card, it flips over, gives you their stats as well as video highlights for every player. So I, I thought it was very cool to put faces and swings to or or pitching mechanics. I mean, I thought like watching Conroy and uh, and Santos pitch was very interesting to, to me. Um, or seeing you know whether it's Jose Canseco or they have a bunch of uh, clips of Matt Chavez hitting. I mean, so just kind of putting those faces to the names that you, you read in the book was was good. Yeah, I completely agree with what you both said. And uh, if I can make a shameless plug, uh, I've had both Ben uh, and Sam on my podcast in the last couple of weeks uh, over at NatsGM.com. Uh, maybe we'll link it underneath the uh, on this uh, podcast as well. But uh, fantastic interviews. I, I thank you both and hope or thank them both. And hopefully maybe we'll get uh, Ben or Sam on uh, this show as well. Um with that, guys, uh, I, I think this is probably a good place for us to wrap up, and uh, we wrap the show the same way we begin every week and uh, say goodbye to the Internet. So, uh, Alec, why don't you uh, tell them where they can find you on Twitter, their, your writing, and anything you want to share. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks again for having me. And, uh, Scott, great to talk with you. I am writing on Banish to the Pen. Again, you can still find me on the late techgraphs.com as well as my own site aldland.wordpress.com and on Twitter at Aldlandia. Very, very cool. Definitely must follow on Twitter and uh, definitely check out your work. I'm a big fan of it. So, uh, Alec, thank you for joining me. Big fan, as I said. So, uh, Scott, uh, same thing. Well, um, if you, if you want to follow my team, or I don't think I've ever given the website. We're at centenarycyclones.com. Uh, that has all the sports for our, our school and you can check out the baseball page and uh, if you guys want to follow, I'm actually trying to get uh, Trey Hinkle, that um, the Rookie of the Year pitcher uh, today. I was talking to a prospect league in Indiana about tr- possibly trying to get him going. So anybody, any listeners out there in the Midwest, hopefully he'll be uh, on a roster out there very soon and maybe you can get to see him play. Um, but uh, I, I owe it to myself to, to write some more for Banish to the Pen. I, I have been out for a little while, but hopefully you all have something posted pretty soon. Maybe, maybe something about some of the things we talked about today, whether it be shifting or, uh, or, or, um, team chemistry. Cause I think, I think the book really brought up a lot of things that, that were interesting to me and, and I have some, some personal takes on. So I uh, hope to do that. And you can always follow me on Twitter, CC baseball, uh, for, for the team stuff. Very cool. Don't hesitate to send your good players down to the uh, Cal Ripken League here, down towards Maryland. We we got some good baseball. And we're always looking for good prospects, so uh, don't hesitate. I got some guys playing in South Carolina this summer, and actually, two of my assistant coaches are coaching down there this summer. But uh, I think we skipped right past Maryland this year, unfortunately. No, very cool. Well, thank you, uh, Scott, and thank you, Alec, both for joining me this week. Uh, I really appreciate you appreciate you guys giving some time on a Monday night, and uh, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the book talk. I, I liked the banter and, and everything in between. So thank you guys for joining me, and uh, hopefully we'll have you guys on before the end of the season. Thank you. Appreciate it. Sounds good. Thanks, Ryan. 
And that's episode 54 of the Banish to the Pen podcast with my special guests, Alec Denton and Scott Kushner. Really enjoyed that. That was some great talk. I enjoyed the book talk and uh, always uh, very, very uh, proud of the, of the uh, article that Alec wrote. That was a tremendous piece and uh, always love having Scott on and getting his insights as a coach. That's a really unique take and a, and a perspective that we don't all get. So thank you guys for joining us. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out before we get out of here to everybody involved in Banish to the Pen, the writers, the technical support staff, the editors, the, uh, just everybody working behind the scenes. Um, we put out a very good product every day, and, and I'm very proud of the work that that is done at Banish to the Pen. So uh, please bookmark it, check it out with your morning coffee every day, and uh, please uh, make sure to check it out. And thank you to everybody that works so hard on the site. Uh, I am Ryan Sullivan at NatsGM.com on Twitter, reminding you, Be nice to your fellow listeners.